So where we are this morning, Israel is right on the edge of the promised land. And it's been a promise that's a long time coming. It was a promise that was given to Abraham more than 500 years prior to our text. That God would take him and he would multiply him into a nation and that he would be able to look up at the stars and the stars, as numerous as they are, would not even begin to compare to the number of his descendants. And as he would go and he would inhabit the land all around him, all of it, the Lord would give over to him and his descendants, his people would live and dwell in that land. And so here they are, they're right on the edge. They're right on the edge, but this isn't the first time they've been on the edge, is it? They were on the edge of the Red Sea coming out of Egypt too, weren't they? They were on the edge of the Red Sea and the mightiest military in all the world pressing down on them and breathing down their neck and and seemingly uh, assuring their destruction. And here they are between a rock and a hard place, an army and a sea. And God had divided that sea so that they could walk right through the middle of it. And so this, this seems like a slam dunk in the, in the scope of what God has done, in the scope of God's faithfulness. It seems ludicrous, it seems crazy to even say that they have a choice, and yet a choice do they have. Will they go or will they stay? Will they go into the promised land and receive what God has given to them, or will they remain where they are? Will they press into where God has assured he is giving it over to them and then realize a a great movement of God's power and provision in their nation? Or will they remain where it's comfortable? Will they remain where it's easy? Will they remain where it's sensible? Now, from all of us on the outside looking in, this doesn't look like much of a choice at all. We've seen how God has worked. We've seen how God has divided the sea. We've seen how he crushed Egypt. We've seen how he's fed them from the sky, how he's given them water out of a rock, how he has delivered them, how he has come and rested his glory right in the midst of their presence. We've read this, and from the outside looking in, this seems like no choice at all. It seems apparent. You go. You go where God has said. You go and take the land that he has given to you. But you know what? It's us in their shoes. When it's us in the position of Israel, it doesn't seem so obvious, doesn't it? God's will always seems obvious when we're looking at other people's lives and at other nations. It doesn't seem so obvious when we look at ours. When God is calling us to forsake financial security to go into a new career. When, when God is calling us to flip our family upside down and adopt or to foster when, when we believe that God may be calling us out of everything that we know and everything we're familiar with into the ministry, well, there we stand on the edge of God's promise. There we stand on the edge of a movement of, great, of God's power. We stand on a movement of God's provision. But in those moments, in those moments for us, it doesn't feel so obvious. Somebody on the outside look, looking in may be able to tell, well, obviously this is what you would do. Obviously God will provide for you. Has God not always provided for you? But when it's us standing in there in those sandals, it doesn't feel that way, does it? It feels terrifying. It it feels uncertain. It feels unsure. And so it doesn't feel like it, it shouldn't be a choice, but it feels like a choice. And it feels like a big choice. And so I think for us this morning, as we read this text, we need to read this text from the perspective of our doubts. 
Not, not from a position in which we know how this story ends, but instead of putting ourselves right there where the Israelites are so that we can understand why it was so difficult, why it was so intimidating, why it was so terrifying. You see, there is always a ledge for you to step over in order for you to, wit- real, to witness a great realization of God's power and protection. There's always a ledge that calls you to stop living by sight and to begin living by faith. There's always a ledge that you have to step over off of sure-footed ground into something that is less certain, something that is less obvious, something that is less apparent. And it's the difference between a faith that is alive and a faith that is dead. And so this morning, I wonder, I wonder if some of you are on the edge of God's promises. I wonder if some of you are on the edge of a movement of God in your life and God is calling you forward. Well, what you know is what Israel is learning is that God's promises in this way serve as a test of our faith. They serve as a test to reveal God's heart to us and our hearts to God. And so that's what I want us to see this morning. I want us to look and I want us to see what tests reveal, especially tests that pertain to the promises of God in our lives. I'm just going to have two main points this morning uh, because I think it's two main things that are revealed. And the first thing I want you to see is that tests reveal God's faithfulness. Tests reveal God's faithfulness. You'll notice in verse 1 it says that the Lord spoke these things to Moses. Uh, we'll go on, and when we begin Deuteronomy, what you'll see in Deuteronomy is that this is something the people wanted to do. But Moses doesn't send Israel into Canaan to spy it out because it's their idea. He sends Israel to spy out Canaan because God says it. He says, the Lord spoke to Moses, send the men. Now, I think this is curious, right? Like, why would God send them in to the land of Canaan to scope it out ahead of time? I think there's a few different reasons, but I think there's one that is primary, that their first and foremost reason that he sent them to scope out the land of Canaan was to show them how good he is to them, to show them how good he is to them, that this is the land, in other words, that I am giving to you, that this is God's gift to his people, and he wants them to be able to go in and to see the gift which he has given to them, to be able to see the depths of his heart. That the purpose of the mission is to go and to see all that God has given them. To bring back a report that, that increases their excitement and their passion and their worship and their, their zeal for the things of God. In fact, if you look at verse 27, they come back and they say that there's only, the only words that they can use are words that God has given. This is a land that flows with milk and honey. They, they, have a, they find a cluster of grapes there. And the cluster of grapes is, is so large that they, that they have to take it and they cut it and they put a pole between two men and they, they hang this cluster of grapes on this pole as they're, as they're walking back. So we're talking about like a, a cluster of grapes the size of a Volkswagen. You know what I'm saying? Now, we don't exactly live in an agrarian culture, so we don't really get what all this means. means but these were agricultural people. So understand what this means. That what God was giving them, this would be like God walking us into Fort Knox and throwing us the keys. This would be like God taking Jeff Bezos' uh, uh, his bank accounts, all of his offshore accounts, I'm sure, and signing them over into our name. This, this is God giving to Israel a million shares of Apple stock. This is a prosperity that is promised and assured to them that is unfathomable to the human mind. 
It is, a, it is prosperity on a scale that is larger than anything that Israel could have imagined. Look at the size of the graves. Look at the fertility of the ground. Look at the prosperity that God has promised. That God, in other words, isn't just giving us a land. He's giving us a wonderful land. That, that God isn't just giving us a gift. He's giving us the best gift imaginable. That, that God isn't just providing for us. God is providing for us in excess. You see, God never overpromises. God never overpromises. God always exceeds his promises to us. His faithfulness is never underwhelming. It's always more than we counted on. It's always more than we expected. It's always better than we expected. Now look, this may be a little bit too raw, a little bit too authentic, but Megan and I, and she's going to get nervous when I start talking about this. Megan and I have a bit of a strange habit at home, all right? And this is going to make Andrew Nunnally's skin crawl, if you've ever seen the culture with Andrew's section on the podcast. But Megan and I, we have this tendency of we'll make a pot of coffee in our house, and we just kind of drink it until it's all gone. And here's what I mean by that, is that pot of coffee may be there two or three days, and we just warm that stuff up in the microwave. See, y'all are judging me. Kay, I see you judging me. Don't judge me. But I'll tell you what, there's nobody that gets more, co- more coffee per dollar out of that Folgers than we do. But we'll just warm it up and we'll just, okay, and it's become such a normal thing in our house. And I know it's, and it was great until one day I drank a fly. That was weird. Again, I told you that's probably too authentic. But, but one time, a few years ago, I didn't really think anything about it, but we, I had some friends over at the house, and I asked one of them, I said, do you want me to warm up a cup of coffee for you? That's probably something I've said to Megan a hundred times, and I didn't think anything of it. Of course, that's what you do, right? At least in our house. And he looked at me like, are you serious, bro? And he said, you can make me a new cup of coffee. And that's the first time that it really registered with me that this is a weird thing that we do in our house. In other words, he's like, bro, you are not serving me your leftovers. But you know, God never serves leftovers to his children. God never serves leftovers to his children. God only gives his best to his children. And why is that? Because a land that flows with milk and honey, that's God's heart. That's what's in God's heart. That's who God is. That gets to the essence of his nature. That's what it means that God is love. That he wouldn't even spare his own son, but he would give his own son, not not something lesser, not a bull, not even a sinful man, but his own son and perfect righteousness offered for me and offered for you as a substitute for us. That means that whatever promises that you're holding to in the kingdom of God, they're going to be fulfilled in a greater way than what you expect. That when God says that all things work together for good in your life, it's going to work together for a good that is beyond, that is unfathomable to you and where you are right now. That if God says that in proper time, whatever you sow, you will reap, you will reap in a proportion that far exceeds your wildest expectations in your life. 
that if God says that heaven is going to be a place in which the streets are made of gold, in which his glory illuminates all of the, that there is, where there is no tears and there is no sickness and there is no disease. Can I tell you something, church? Heaven is going to be better than what you think it is. Heaven is going to be greater than the way that you dream of it being. That God doesn't under-deliver. He doesn't underwhelm in his faithfulness. No, God over-delivers. God gives an excess. God gives his best to his children. So this morning, if you're standing on the edge of God's promises, go forward. Go forward. Press on. Whatever big thing God is calling you to, whatever promised land God is bringing you into, go forward and receive from God his best. But, but, there's something else that I want you to see about God's heart here. That not only does it reveal God's heart in that we see what he has given to, the, to us, but it reveals God heart, God's heart when you see what God has already given. In other words, it's not just what he is giving, it's who he is giving it to. Notice that it says here, the people of Israel. And then there's an emphasis, right? Each tribe. Here's what, here's what God is doing. He's saying this very specifically. Because why? This promise is half fulfilled already. Do you remember what the promise was to Abraham? The promise to Abraham was twofold. It was, yes, you're going to receive the land of promise. But it was also what? You're going to become a great nation. You're going to become a nation that is more numerous than the stars of the sky. And right then, if you would have stood at the tabernacle and you would have looked out and you would have seen all of the concentric circles of, of tents that were surrounding, built around the tabernacle, it would have looked like an ocean of tents. Because at this point, the people of Israel were more than 2 million strong. We see already that there's 600,000 to a million fighting men that are there and available ready to go to war and to battle and to take the promised land on God's behalf. So you have this, this nation of people who began as a man, who began as a promise, and now they are 12 tribes deep, 2 million people strong. God had been faithful, see? God had been faithful. We skipped over it, but he begins to, to tell them what to do and give them particular marching orders on exactly what they're supposed to do as they go in and spy out the promised land. And I want you to, the, the, there's a few different things I wish we had time to cover, but we really don't. But it says in verse 17, Moses sent them to spy the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country. Now, that seems innocuous enough. Like, it doesn't seem like a very big deal. But you see, what we have to remember, and the reason that we're preaching the series that we're preaching, is that the, the Bible is woven together with long threads. Here's what I mean by that. That there are threads that begin in Genesis that weave all the way and go all the way to Revelation. There are threads that we're intended to pick up on. And as we begin to pick up on them, all of a sudden we begin to see that this isn't a whole bunch of random stories that are piecemealed together to make this really thick book. Instead, this is a cohesive story. This is a cohesive message coming together. So do you look at what it says all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. This goes back before there were 2 million people, before there were 12 tribes, all the way to the original promise to Abram. God takes Abram and he sends Abram into the land of Canaan so that Abram can go and he can see how fertile the land is, so that he can see how great the promise is. Listen to what it says. From there he moved to the hill country. Does that sound familiar? 
on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent and Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham, Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Does that sound familiar? They are literally retracing the steps of Abraham. More than 500 years later, more than 2 million people later, more than 12, or 12 tribes later. And here they are retracing the steps in which God had said, this is going to be yours, Abram. All of this is going to be yours. In fact, as they walked through the hill country, do you know what was in the hill country in Horeb? Abraham's grave. His bones were there. They were there. Jacob's bones are there. All the sons except for Joseph, all of their bones, all of them are there. And they are walking through literally the archives of God's faithfulness to their people. And as they walk, spying out this land, God is saying, this is the promise. These are the bones. This is the fulfillment of what I have long said. I have was faithful to Abram. I was faithful to Isaac. I was faithful to Jacob. I was faithful to the patriarchs. I was faithful to them all. And as I was faithful to them, so I will be faithful to you. As I have fulfilled my word to Abram, you better believe that when I say go, I am giving you this land. I will fulfill my land, my, my word to you. See, our lives, they're like a house that's being built to reveal God's faithfulness that you have this moment in your life and you have your salvation where you come and you, every salvation is the result of a crisis of faith at some point. It, it's that crisis in which you realize that you don't measure up. That crisis in which you realize that your sin is insurmountable. That crisis in which you come to the place and the only thing that you have is the proven work of God and the promise that God will, will come and re move your sin from you and place it all upon Jesus and give you all of Jesus's righteousness. And it lays a foundation. And then you go and you go through hard stuff, don't you? Every single one of you have been through hard stuff. You go through hard stuff and you have marriage troubles. And you think, man, how in the world are we going to get through this? How in the world are we going to get to the other side? But you know what God does? God sustains you. God sustains you. You continue to work and you continue to press on and you continue to dig and you continue to entrust your life to the Lord. And there is the Lord. And, and all of a sudden you get to the other side and you say, man, I didn't even know marriage could be like this. God was faithful. And you come to another moment that's a crisis of faith. It's a God's calling you to, to leave your job and your financial security. And you're standing there and you're on the edge of the promises and you know without a doubt that this is the Lord's movement. The, the advisors in your life, they're confirming this. You're, you're reading the scriptures and the scriptures are confirming this. And you know, you know that God would have you to leave, but it's the only thing that you know. It's everything that's familiar. It's everything that's comfortable. It's, it's the livelihood that your, your family depends on. And all of a sudden you take that step. That step that is not by sight, but that step that's by faith. And you get to the other side. And God comes through for you in a way that wasn't easy. It wasn't comfortable. It wasn't convenient, but it was powerful. It was powerful. And then you come and all of a sudden your children, they rebel. And life gets real again and life gets hard again. 
And you think, oh, but Lord, but Lord, did I not raise them in the fear and admonition of your glory? Did, did I not? I, I know I was so, so weak as a parent, and I know I was so flawed as a dad, but Lord, but Lord, I offered my children to you. And the Lord sustains you when you think you can't take another step. And the Lord wakes you up with new mercies when you think you're not going to make it another day. And then you begin to age and your, your health struggles. And you find days that you wake up and you don't want to wake up. You find days in which you hurt. You're afraid of what the future holds. You're afraid of the end. But the Lord, the Lord provides the Lord, he may heal you or the Lord may provide you the strength to press on in the midst of your difficulty. But the Lord, he continues to, to, to sustain your joy and sustain your hope. Not, not easy. And I'm not saying you don't have bad days. And I'm not saying you don't have low points. But what I'm saying is, is that you would give testimony that the Lord, the Lord has been in every step. That the Lord has been there with every tear. That the Lord has been there in every moment of despair. The Lord has been there come to the place of retirement and you're ready to coast a minute and you feel like you deserve to coast a minute and then all of a sudden the Lord renews his call to ministry in your life and you realize uh oh here I am on the edge of another promise here I am on the edge of something else difficult here I am on the edge of something else that's inconvenient, that's uncomfortable, that honestly I have trouble even getting excited about at times. And from the outside looking in, if you have one of those steps all by itself, it seems impossible to make it through, doesn't it? It seems impossible to make it through bad health or it seems impossible to make it through a bad marriage or it seems impossible to overcome rebellious children or it seems impossible that you would step out of a comfortable career into something that, that is really uncertain or it seems impossible that you're going to take this step and begin using your golden years for ministry and mission except none of those are, are called placed on you in a vacuum all of those are placed into a history book all of those are placed into a context so that now you're able to look back like Israel looked back at Egypt like Israel looked back at the bread coming from the sky like Israel looked back at the glory of God in their midst and seeing their history as they walked over the bones of Abram was proof that they could take the step that looked impossible and that's what your life looks like that none of the difficult things come all of a sudden out of nowhere, that all of them have been built into your life, have been a process that God has been bringing you to, to be over the course so that your character is formed, so that your desires are formed, so that your abilities are formed, so that one wall builds to another wall, which holds up the whole house, the foundation rooted in your abiding in Christ. That the house of your life is a declaration of the faithfulness of God. The house of your life is a declaration of the faithfulness of God. And so this morning, here's what I'm telling you. Look back over the course of, your, of the history of your life and let God's faithfulness in the past nudge you forward into the future. Let it nudge you forward into the callings that God has placed onto your life. Let it nudge you forward into who God is calling you to be in this season. Let it nudge you forward and step over the ledge into sights unseen by faith that God would have you be who God would have you to be. But it doesn't just reveal God's faithfulness. 
Tests also reveal our faith. They reveal our faith or, or they reveal our lack thereof. There's two different competing responses to the spying out of the land, to the recon mission that takes place here in, in uh, Numbers chapter 13. All right, so you have 12 spies and you have two that come back with one report and you have 10 others that come back with another report. You have Caleb, he speaks up on behalf of the two. And we learn that in, in chapter 14, he's also speaking on behalf of Moses and on behalf of, of Aaron. But Caleb comes and it says, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it. In other words, here's what Caleb says. Why in the world would we not enjoy the promised land that God has given to us? Let me say, given to us. Why would we not enjoy it every second that we're able to enjoy it? Why would we hesitate even for a moment? Let's go. Let's take it. God has promised we are able to overcome it. Yeah, they're big. Yeah, it's going to be hard. Yeah, it's not going to be convenient all the time. But God has said go, and God has delivered every time he said go. Let's not waste a second. Let's go. Then you have the other people. You have the common sense people, right? You, you, you have the people that they look and they evaluate where they are and they, have, they evaluate the circumstance that they find themselves in. And listen to what it says. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people. For they are stronger than we are. For they are stronger than we are. And they said, are you kidding me, Caleb? And this is 10 chiefs of the, of the tribes. Are you kidding me? Did you not see those people? Yeah, yeah, we got some grapes. Yeah, we can be rich. But what good is wealth and prosperity if we're dead? They're enormous. They're the children of the Nephilim. Now, I don't know if you know who the Nephilim are. The Nephilim are the people from Genesis chapter 6. The sons of God and the, son, and the daughters of men come together and they create this whole tribe of giants. Don't really even know exactly what all that means. That's just, they're picked up out the scriptures. Probably the, the, the ancestors to Goliath, most people think. He said, these people are giants. They will step on us like grasshoppers. What hope do we have? What do you expect us to do? I, I want you to notice how many different times they talk about the size. They say, stronger. Then they go out and they say, this is a land that devours. And all the people we saw are of great height. And then he says, and there we saw the Nephilim. And they will seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, Right? He's making this connection. These people are enormous. And y'all, this is the difference between faith and unbelief. This is the difference between faith and unbelief. Faith says, look at how small my threat is in comparison to my God. Unbelief says, look at how big my threat is in comparison to me. That's the difference. That's the difference between, between anxiety and excitement. Th that, that's the difference between being paralyzed, paralysis by analysis, and passion in your life for the things of God. Have you ever been on a situation and you're mulling it over in your mind and you're mulling it over in your mind and you're mulling it over in your mind and you come to a place where ultimately you're just miserable? And the truth is, is you already know that God's calling you to go. You already know that God's calling you to do it. But you keep analyzing and analyzing and analyzing to the point in which there's no excitement left. There's no passion left. There's no zeal left. God sent them into the promised land that their passion, that their affections might be increased, that their hearts might be set on fire, that they might realize his love for his people. 
but they analyzed it until they were paralyzed. What about you? What about you? I wonder this morning, all of us, as we stand on the edge of God's call for our lives, as we stand on these areas in which God's calling us to apply His promises to ourselves, I wonder if we would ask ourselves, what do we believe in most, the power of God or the size of our threats? See, there's a however. In, in verse 27, they begin by giving this great report, this is a land that flows with milk and honey, this, this is its fruit. But then verse 28, it says what? However. It's one of the most emphatic words in, all this, in this whole text. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. So there's another connection. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. However, I wonder, as you stand on the edge of God's promises in your life, I wonder what your howevers are. I wonder if you're saying, however, I, I don't have the money. I don't have the means. I can't adopt, I can't foster, I can't give, I can't go on mission. I don't have the financial means to do those things. Or if you say, however, I'm too young. However, my, my kids are too young. However, I'm too old. However, I'm past my prime. However, that's a young man's game. However, 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 what are the howevers in your life that are preventing you, that are standing between you and the realization of God's promises in your life this morning? Will you trust him? Will you trust him? That it's not about how strong you are. It's not about how strong your enemies are. It's not about how strong your threats are. It's not about how daunting the task is. The question is, is will you trust the enormity, the power, the might, the provision of God himself? You know, earlier I said something that may have made you nervous. I said that God only promises his best to his children. And that's true. God does only promise his best to his children. God only gives his best to his children. But the difficulty comes in in what definition of best that we use. What's the definition of best that we use? You see, we typically take best to mean easiest. We typically take best to mean path of least resistance. That, that we take God's will, in other words, and we equate it with being smooth, being easy, being simple. That's where the people of Israel were. They, they had left Egypt. They had went to Sinai. They had marched across the wilderness. They had come to the edge of the promised land. There was some expectation that they were going to receive it. But you know what they figured out? This is not going to be nearly as easy as what we thought it was going to be. This is going to be a lot harder than what we were expecting. That they wanted a path of least resistance. But y'all, within the will of God in a fallen world, a path of least resistance does not exist. God's plan for you is wonderful. God's plan for you is better than your plan for you. But wonderful as it is, it's not easy. It's not easy. It's not comfortable. It's not smooth. God's plan for you is better than your plan for you, but it's not nearly as smooth as your plan for you. When graduation comes around in May, there's going to be a question a lot of people are going to answer on these surveys, like what's your life verse, what's your best verse? And what... One of the most common, if not the most common, is Jeremiah 29.11. I have it written here on the screen that, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, or plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And can I tell you something? That's an awesome verse. And it's true. And it's good. Now, it was written to Israel, and it can be applied, I believe, to the, to the church today. But y'all, that, that is good, and we ought to hold fast to it, but I'm not sure that it means what we think it means. 
See, what we think is we think that this verse is assuring us the American promised land of that we can have a good marriage, that we can have two and a half children and a white picket fence and a satisfying career and a sound education, that we can flourish, that we can have more material things that our, our parents had and that their, our grandparents had. But that's not what this verse at all means. Did you know that who this verse was written to? This verse was written to people who were in exile. That I know that I have plans for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope, future and a hope in exile. These were people that were in exile who would not in their lifetimes ever get out of exile. The man that wrote this, the man Jeremiah, do you know what we call him? We call him the weeping prophet. He was the one that wrote these words down. This was not an assurance of an easy life. This was not the assurance of a convenient life. This was the assurance that God was at work in their midst in spite of their circumstances, in spite of their hardship, in spite of the difficulty, that through them the Messiah would come, that through them that there would be a remnant that would be saved, that the Lord would use to be a blessing to every nation, that there would be a remnant that one day would lead to me and you so that they could rest in the hope for the future. Y'all, that's where we are. We may walk through and our children, we may not in our lifetime see them return to the faith. We may not see the end of of, of hard health circumstances. the, The new job, as you step over, the new job may not be simple. The new job may not be easy. But can I tell you that it doesn't matter. Easy does not equal God's will. That sometimes, sometimes, oftentimes, God calls us into places in our lives that are more difficult, that are harder. Because we stand to see more of God's glory through hardship than we would ever glimpse through ease. That's how God's will for you can be better and harder at the very same time. See, we tend to evaluate God's will on difficulty level. Here's what I mean. We, We say marriage is hard right now, so God's will must be that we can, we can divide and we can go our separate ways. My job isn't good. So obviously I can just quit and I'll figure out the rest later. My health is bad. So, th- so I can withdraw from, from the word that God has called me to commit my life to. That when things get hard, we tend to receive those hard circumstances in our lives as declarations from God that we are outside of his will or that it's his will that we withdraw when the truth is, the truth is, the hardness of the circumstances, the difficulties of what we face are opportunities of faith. They're the edge of his promises that we can press deeper into you because what's best for you is not an easy life. What's best for you is to come to the end of your self-belief. What's best for you is that you would be carved out of the image of Jesus Christ. Christ. What's best for you is that your character would be forged by the fire of this world, that all of the last inklings of self-sufficiency would be melted away so that now, now you are wholly offered to Jesus. All of your hopes, all of your aspirations, all of your ambitions are totally hinged on his provision for your life. So don't stand on the edge of God's promise looking for easy. Stand on the edge in faith, trusting in God's power, trusting in God's power. There's a question, we're gonna get to this next week, but chapter 13 leaves us with a question. Who will they follow? 
who will the people follow? Will they follow Caleb and Joshua, Aaron and Moses? Or will they follow the other 10 spies? Whose words will they heed? Will they step over in faith or will they retreat in fear? Who will they trust? Will they trust what God has said that he is giving them the land? Or will they trust what their eyes reveal to them about the hardship that they know? In other words, what's in their hearts? What's in their hearts? Faith or unbelief? And those are the same questions that are being asked of you this morning. How will you respond? Who will you trust? Standing on the edge of God's promises, will you take the step? Let's pray together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.